Amen. Good morning. Good to see everyone here. We're going to be in Luke 10 today. Luke 10. Praise God. Pastor Hunter preached for us from Luke 9 last week. We've been doing a series in Luke, appropriately entitled Luke. Luke seen Jesus seeking and saving the lost. Luke seen Jesus seeking and saving the lost, right? So now we arrive today at Luke 10. As you're turning, don't forget coming up August 25th, we have a marriage seminar for you guys. It's going to be August 25th right here. So if you're married and you're breathing, you can benefit from this. All right. It's going to be called the joy of staying married. The joy of staying married. And we're looking forward to it. That's August 25th right here at TCC Marriage Seminar. Before we read the text and go over the Bible together, I just want to pray for us. I'm going to pray a famous prayer that's been handed down throughout history. I pray that you'll be encouraged by it. Let's go to God together. O God most high, creator of the ends of the earth, governor of the universe, judge of all men, head of the church, savior of sinners, your greatness is unsearchable. Your goodness, God, is infinite. Your compassions unfailing. Your providence boundless. And your mercies are ever new. God, we bless you today for these words of salvation we shall read How important and suitable and encouraging are the doctrines, the promises, and invitations of the gospel of peace. Father, we are lost, but in your word you have presented to us a full, free, and eternal salvation. We are weak, but here we learn that help is found in the one who is mighty. And we are poor, but in Christ we discover unsearchable riches. We are blind, but in Jesus we see that he has treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Father, we thank you for your unspeakable gift today of your word. Now we turn to your son, who is our only refuge, foundation, hope, and confidence. We depend upon his death and we rest in his righteousness. And desire to bear his image. May his glory fill our minds today. His love reign in our affections. And may his cross inflame us with splendid ardor for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now to offset a formal prayer, I want to share an informal story. I have in my house, under my charge now, a three-year-old. Asa, and if you're a parent, you know one of the joys of parenting a younger child is uh, getting through the potty training stage, right? So I'm through that now with Asa, but I still have to go with him to the bathroom, okay? And when we go to a public bathroom, it is nothing short of adventure. Why? Because when he walks in there, it's as if he started playing the game of blind man's bluff, right? He begins to feel around, and he touches every disgusting surface that you could think of. 
I see him over there at the daddy diaper changing station. He looks like an ape at the zoo. He's like grooming it, putting stuff in his mouth. Disgusting. I'm like, son, just hold your shirt. Hold your shirt. Don't touch anything. I go wash my hands. I turn around. And like my father embraced me after college graduation, he embraces the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) You know, as I came off of one of those experiences this week, I thought to myself, pastors always spiritualize things, right? I thought to myself, many of us live the Christian life in this way. We're in the room We're in the room of orthodox believing Christianity. We've got our gospel straight, but we have forgotten our mission. We have forgotten the very reason that we began to follow Christ in the first place, right? We're good at staying busy. We're good at reaching out and rubbing our hands all over all kinds of things, right? We have our interests. We have our chick hobbies, our various causes, But we like to make the things that are supposed to be enjoyed on the periphery of our existence the center of our life. So God has given us good things. Basketball games, Brazilian coffee, Netflix originals, CrossFit. These are good things, but they're not meant to be our chief joy. They're not meant to be the central point of our existence. But if we're not careful, even good things, like family education or volunteerism or community service, even these things can cloud out what it means to be living sent by Jesus Christ. And I can ask you an honest question at this time. As you're following Christ, as you're walking with Him, do you ever feel like you're missing something? Something's just not right here. It could be that you are not living sent by the Master of Jesus Christ. And today I want to look at this text because God has given us Luke 10 in order to remind us of what it means to live sent by Jesus for the glory of God the Father. Living sent by Jesus. These early followers, they were guys who said, I'm on team Jesus. I want to identify with him. Not so much with Judaism, but with him, with Jesus. Now what do I do? And Jesus said, now you live sent on a mission for me. So we're going to read Luke 10 with that lens. A lot of stuff in here that will be obvious that it's for the first century, right? Many of you guys don't spend your time walking from town to town. You don't even own a tunic. I get that. But there are things in Luke 10 that transcend the culture gap here. And God has given them to you today to outline what it means to be living sent. So first off, we're going to look at the first 16 verses. We'll call this the essence of living sent. That's Luke 10, 1 through 16, the essence of living sent. I want to read the first 11 verses here with you. That's Luke 10, beginning in verse 1. So after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and he sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, if you've read through Luke, like I know you all are doing, you'll remember that earlier in chapter 9, there was another big sending, but it was only 12, his immediate disciples he sent out. Now there's a broadening, and I think we can learn 
more about what it means to be sent as a church because now he's sending the more normal everyday followers of Christ, the 72. He's sending them out to go around in his region to all the different towns near there. Verse 2. And so Jesus says to them, famously, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag or knapsack or sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you're in a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you. Then, verse 9, heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. In verse 10, whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And there's a lot in this text that we're not going to be able to go over. But I do want to sum it up by saying the essence of living sent is kingdom advancement. Okay? Kingdom advancement. And we have a sense of what this means because here we see that the king of all creation has now come. This is God's response to man's rebellion. The king has arrived and Jesus, who is the creator king, he wants his realm to be expanded, to be advanced. You can see this illustrated really well in some of the games that we played. If you've ever, if you've ever played uh, Settlers of Catan or Monopoly or uh, Ticket to Ride, any of these games have the idea built in that you need to be expanding the realm, right? Uh, even last night I was on uh, my computer looking something up. And I was at some website, and all of a sudden popped up this advertisement. Maybe you've seen it. It was for an online game. It was like Lord of the Knights. And if you click on that, immediately you can have your whole realm, and you're fighting off this other realm, and you're trying to make your realm bigger. There's something in us that wants to expand a realm. You can see this in the impulse in our culture to expand our materialism, right? To expand our own little kingdoms. We were made for this expansion rule. That's what it means to be living sent. We want to expand the realm of Jesus Christ. Now look what Jesus says here. He's going to give us four components of what it means to be living sent. There's a lot here, but I'm going to pick out four things that, it, uh, that illustrate what it means to be living sent. First one, look at verse 2. After sending out a small army of people, Jesus says this. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. What did he mean by that? Well, the king has come, and now there are going to be many people who escape the judgment of God, the just wrath of God, because the king has come. Many people will come into his harvest, but we have a worker shortage. We don't have enough people to facilitate the number of folks that are going to come into the kingdom of God. Very interesting how Jesus says we should respond to this. Intuitively, you might think, worker shortage? I'm going to go grab some friends. Maybe I'll even have to coerce some people into this, but it's a good cause, so we'll do it that way. It's not what Jesus says. Look what he says. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, what? 
Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. This idea that if you're living sent, you need to be praying that God would send others with you to live sent on mission. The first step is not to recruit some other people. The first step is to bend the knee and say, God, this task is enormous. We need you to send more workers. I thought back to when I was a kid. I used to play with these uh, toy soldiers, like the ones from Toy Story. Back then, in the 80s, we called them army men, right? And you'd get them in these big packs, and they'd have like five of every type of army man. But there was one type, one picture I'm going to try to put up here that I always hated to get. It was this guy. <laughs> so look, he doesn't have a rifle, no pistol. He's not even the minesweeper guy who can hit people in the knee, right? He's a guy in the battle on a telephone. I tried to make that antenna be a sword, but it didn't work. It's the worst guy ever to get in your army, man, so I put him on the front so he'd get killed first. But I only did this because I was too young to understand there's a reason he's holding the phone, right? He is the one guy of all the army men that can call in air support, a far superior force than what we have on the ground. That's the idea behind this text. There's only one way to call in a force much bigger than you have if you're living on mission, and that's to pray. Pick up the prayer phone and call and ask God, I can't do this. We don't have enough workers. KTC is missing workers. We're having camp. We don't have enough people. We're moving into a neighborhood, and there's a lot to do. Call out to God. Ask Him to provide the laborers. That's the first aspect of living sin. It's this attitude of dependence on the power of God. Praying. Secondly, we find this in the text as well. The idea of healing. Right? The early followers of Christ who were living sent by the king were people of mercy. They demonstrated mercy through the healing of people. Jesus commanded them, verse 8. Whenever you go into a town, remember the context, they were to go out with the gospel, go into different towns. Whenever you go into a town, if they receive you, eat what they give you, and then heal the sick people in it. Now, this was a phenomenal thing. You would have loved to see it. The disciples going out, healing everywhere, sick people no longer sick, the lame are healed, the blind can see. This type of phenomenal power followed Jesus around. Why? To demonstrate the mercy and justice of God and to validate that the true king had come. But something else was going on as well. When people were being healed, some type of deep concept was being taught. And you can see this. Uh, this week, I saw, um, last week actually, there was a famous uh, celebrity uh, that was in Charlotte. He's, uh, Donnie Wahlberg's his name. Maybe you know Donnie Wahlberg from the old group, New Kids on the Block. They were touring. Now he's on the TV show Blue Bloods with Magnum P.I. Donnie Wahlberg was in Charlotte, and he made the news because Donnie Wahlberg went to Waffle House late at night. He got his Waffle House meal, and he left a $2,000 tip. And he made the news, and he came out on social media, and people were asking, why would you leave 2000 at Waffle House? Are you just parading your wealth, or what's going on? He said, no, I grew up hard. My parents always waited tables and worked in places like this. So I know what it means to be financially dependent and destitute. So I showed them mercy with this huge check. 
in order to kind of give back. And that illustrates what happens when we show mercy on mission for God. There was a time when you were in need of spiritual mercy. Not like Waffle House where you need some financial help. You were at a point where you were spiritually destitute. And God swooped in with more than $2,000 worth of mercy and saved you, pulled you out of the pit of your own sin and guilt. And he mercifully rescued you. That's why God wants us to do acts of mercy attached to our living sin. As we are speaking the gospel, we are to show the mercy of God so that we'll never forget where we came from spiritually and so that the whole world will see tangible expressions of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, at the end of those same verses, verses 8 and 9, look at what Jesus says. He says, heal the sick there and then say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. The kingdom of God has come near. Verse 11 says the same thing. Tell these people the kingdom of God is near. That's a short summary statement of what we would call today the gospel, right? The good news that God once in the beginning created a perfect world and everything was good for his purposes. But then we all people, every one of us rebelled against him. We needed a king. And the king has now come in Jesus Christ through his perfect life and his sacrificial death. There is now hope for all who trust and come into his kingdom. The kingdom is near. That's the message. That's the good news that we need to be speaking with our lips as we go out living sent for Jesus. So here's an application. Take something home from this text. How will you share this message outside your home this week? How will you share the message that the kingdom of God is near outside of your home this week? It's going to take some planning, right? You're going to have to give some thought to that. Just like everything else in your life. It's really good that you can plan and do your morning yoga. That's good that you can get exercise every day. That takes sacrifice, planning. You have to craft your schedule around that, right? I'm personally impressed for every one of you who are able to serve a gluten-free, organic, locally grown supper, homemade every night. That takes planning. Those of you who do that, two thumbs up from me. And I keep the kids. It's a cold hot dog wrapped in potato chips for supper. <laughs> and they love it. <laughs> you're going to have to plan how you're going to share the gospel. Okay? You're going to have to be intentional and think through it's no huge deal. Who, who might I just share this with this week? Think about how that might happen. It's not just going to flow naturally. You have to think about it. I know many of you do that, but many of us can also grow there. Finally, last aspect of the essence of living sin, and it is repenting. We've seen praying, healing, sharing. Finally, we see repenting. And really, a lot of the text is about repentance. All the confusing part here is about simply repentance. Look in verse 12. Jesus now begins to say, all right, you're sharing the gospel with all these people now, and I'm going to make a comparison to these people now to some ancient folks in the Old Testament. All right, in verse 12 he says, I'm going to tell you, it will be more bearable on the last day, the final day of judgment, for Sodom, Old Testament town, than for this town, 
today who rejects me. Okay, Sodom in Scripture was infamous for rejecting God. They did it through sexual immorality. They did it through social injustice to the poor. They're the poster child for rejecting God and not repenting. And so Jesus said, it's going to be worse for you guys who are rejecting me than it was for Sodom. Why? Now the king has come, right? Now Jesus has arrived. You should be able to see his glory. If you still reject him and don't repent, the judgment will be even worse than what happened to Sodom. We read in the story of Sodom, what happened? Fire of God, the wrath of God, the glory of God in fiery wrath came down and destroyed Sodom. It'll be worse for you because you have the truth, the clarity of the gospel if you do not repent. He names off some other cities here, verse 13. The people of Cherazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in some other cities, Tyre and Sidon, they would have what? They would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Again, Tyre and Sidon are just Old Testament cities that were rebellious. Jesus is saying they would have repented had they seen people being healed, had they heard the gospel being preached. You too must repent. Then he turns in verse 15 to his own town. This would be the Raleigh for Jesus because he turns now to the people of Capernaum. Uh, Jesus wasn't born there, but that was his base of ministry, the city of Capernaum. And he says now, you Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you repent? Will you see me in all my glory? And he says, no, you're going to be brought down to Hades. Why? Because they failed to repent. They heard the gospel, but they did not repent of their rebellion and their sin. Verse 16 is a nice little summary statement. Jesus says, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, Rejects me. That rejecting is the opposite of repenting. You don't repent. Instead, you reject. The one who rejects me, says Jesus, rejects him who sent me. That is Father God. Chief message of us living sent together is repentance. We see it in our own life, the need for it. But also, when we're speaking the gospel, we must call people. We must call people to repentance. Now, repentance can be easily misunderstood, right? Uh, sometimes we think of it simply as changing to escape judgment. That might be a part of repentance, but it's not all of it. Again, I told you earlier, I've got a wonderful three-year-old at my house, and uh, we have this struggle sometimes. You might know it if you're a parent. I put him to bed at a certain time. You know, it's uh, 8 o'clock, and I put him to bed. And then uh, I go do my thing for 30 minutes. And then 30 minutes later, I listen. And it still sounds like a European soccer match in his room, right? There's, there's yelling. There's all kinds of rumbling in there. So I know he's up doing something. And so I, I try to sneak up. But maybe at 200 pounds, I'm not as quiet as I used to be. But <laughs> Because when I get there and I crack the door, you know, he sees me, right? And what is it then? It's mad dash to the bottom bunk. He dives in, and even though by that time he knows I've seen him, what does he do? You know, the lamest fake sleep you've ever seen when I open. He's trying to change his behavior to avoid judgment. But that's not all that repentance is. 
Speaking of running away to escape, I heard about a cow who wanted to leave her field so badly that she resolved to leapfrog and bound over a barbed wire fence. Took off running, jumped over the barbed wire fence. It was utter destruction. (laughs) That's not too bad. (laughs) But repentance, repentance is much more than just trying to escape. Clear the cow off. (laughs) Clear off the cow. Think about Think about the thief on the cross, all right? The thief on the cross was legally guilty. He's put there, and of all the thieves ever hung by the Roman Empire, who is he hung by? He's hung by the Lamb of God. So his legal guilt melts into this moral guilt as he sees the innocence, the perfection of Jesus Christ. He's totally perfect. He's never done anything wrong. And he's glorious even in his death. And the thief realizes that. And he begins to say, will you remember me? He tells all the other robbers up there. He says, hey, look, man, this guy's innocent. Will you remember me in light of your glory? When your kingdom comes, will you remember me? I'm guilty. You're innocent. That's the essence of repentance. We need to be speaking in such a way that gives people the opportunity to see their guilt, but even more so, to grab on to the beauty of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be living sent. So here's questions for you in light of that. In what ways will God have you repent of your guilt in light of His innocence today? In light of the innocence of Jesus Christ, in what ways... Would God have you repent of your guilt? Faith is resting in the innocence of Jesus, right? It's not enough just to say, I'm guilty, you're innocent. But faith says, now I'm in you and it's okay. I don't have to make up for it, right? I trust that your sacrifice is enough to cover all of my guilt. That's how faith and repentance work together. How does God want you to repent of your guilt and... Who in your life needs to be urged toward repentance? I'm not talking about giving someone a list of all their flaws. I'm just talking about showing someone the innocence and greatness of Jesus Christ so they can just do a little comparison and they can repent and call out to Jesus. Who in your life needs to hear this message of repentance? That's the essence of living sin. Let me now share the joys of living sin. That's the last half of this text, verses 17 through 24, the joys of living sin. I see three of them here. Three joys are mentioned. First, look at what happened when these ancient followers come back from following Jesus, right? So Jesus sent them out on almost like a Girl Scout route, right? Into different towns, door to door, proclaiming the message of Jesus. And now they've all come back, all 72 of them, And they're really happy about one thing. They're blown away about one thing. Look what it is. Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy. And this is what they said. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And so Jesus says to them, 
I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Man, they loved that. They were rejoicing in what we might call the subjection of Satan. Satan had been bound in a way by this gospel preaching. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, among other things, Satan was called the great accuser. That meant that he would regularly accuse people of their guilt before God. He would also blind the nations so they couldn't see the glory of God. But now, because Christ has come, that blindness has been lifted with the perfect life and the death of Jesus. The blindness is lifted and he can no longer accuse people who hide in the kingdom of God. Why Jesus, he can quote from Isaiah 14 and say, I see Satan falling. It's like lightning because it's so sudden and profound. Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. My kingdom is surpassing it. And then he alludes to Genesis 3. Did you catch that in the text? He says, I've given you authority to tread on what? Snakes and scorpions. What did he mean by that? Well, part of what he meant was there's a throwback to Genesis 3 where God promised that one would come to crush evil, to crush the head of Satan himself. And now Jesus says, I'm transferring that authority to you. You can defeat Satan in my name. He cannot stand up to the glory of Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us as we live sent today? Well, if you want to experience God's best triumphs over evil, you must be living sent. You must be out there proclaiming the gospel, doing acts of mercy, dependently praying on him. And that's how you experience Satan falling, Satan being defeated. But look what happens now. There's a curveball here. After talking about all this, verse 20 happens. Look what happens. Jesus says, oh yeah, I gave you power to defeat Satan. Nevertheless, verse 20, don't rejoice in that. That the spirits are subject to you. The guys who used to rule the whole realm and are evil, now they're subject to you. Don't rejoice in that. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Say, what? What, what does he mean by that? This is as if Pastor Sean is now leading a team in Chicago, and they're going to downtown Chicago, and they're working in some trouble areas. Fifteen people from our church are there serving. They're coming back today. What if they came back today, and they said, listen, Sean stood up here, and he said, I was out walking the streets, and all of a sudden, we were surrounded by 20 hard guys. They were gang members, and they surrounded us. And you know what I did? I could tell there was a demon working here, and I cast out demons from all 20 of them. Man, we'd be excited. We'd say, yes! They rejoiced and they were no longer consumed by demons. And it was awesome. And we were on a roll, man. So we went downtown to this other hub of sex trafficking. And you know what? There were men and women who were captured there. And we called out demons. 500 demons left that place. We would all be like, yeah! This is what's happening. And yet Jesus says, oh, don't rejoice too much in that. Instead, rejoice in something else. What in the world does he mean? Well, I don't think he means we cannot be excited about ministry success. It's appropriate to be excited about KTC Kids Ministry or your mission trip or the fall of Satan. But he does use strong language here. I think he's trying to make a point. 
I think he's given us a text to make a point about pride. About pride. Why is he talking about pride here? Well, think about Jesus saying this. You think it was a powerful thing to defeat all these demons? You should have seen what it took to turn you towards me. Right? Now that's power. That's what Jesus is saying. That's something worth rejoicing in. Writer Marshall Siegel said the same thing like this. Look at this quote. It's a good quote. He says, What is the greater miracle? That the Spirit removed a demon from another person's body through you? Or that he removed you out of hell? Deep inside our pride-filled hearts, we want to believe that the latter is not really that hard. The part about getting us out of hell. We want to believe in our pride-filled hearts that that part is not that hard. We know we need help, but we think of ourselves more as a remodel than an abandoned foreclosure, right? And it's more appealing to our pride to marvel at the wonders God does through our efforts in ministry than what he does for us despite our weak and sinful efforts. Great last sentence. This broken mentality is at the bottom of why I might find my ministry for Jesus much more exhilarating than Jesus' ministry to me. Get that? I might find my ministry for Jesus more exhilarating than what God ever did to change me redemptively from a hater of God to a lover of God and his family. And the same author gives us some really good questions here. Really good questions to ask yourself. What captivates your heart more? What God does through you or what he has done for you, right? Where is your imagination more prone to wonder how God might choose to use you or that he chose to save you in the first place? Here's what Jesus is saying. Don't rejoice in this, that you made so many friends in Jesus' name or sacrificed to help the poor, or were outspoken for the cause of justice, or even led so many to saving faith. But rejoice in this. Know that the deepest, surest, highest pleasure that anyone has ever had, sure the most majestic mountains or the most beautiful beaches, higher than the greatest miracles or successes in ministry, is the joy of having your name hidden in the heart of God. Nothing can compare the joy to be had in Jesus and knowing you will be forever with him. Jesus said, that's the ultimate joy. These other joys are okay, but there's a sense that they're so much lesser that I can say, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice chiefly, ultimately, in the fact that you have been saved from an eternity of doom to be with a glorious Savior in Jesus Christ. I want to apply this truth, this concept, specifically to marriage. we got a marriage conference coming up. The joy of being married is not ultimate, right? The joy of being brought into God's family is far superior than the happiest and most romantic marriages. Okay? Many of us, many of you, feel a sense of hopelessness as you go on Facebook or Instagram and you see your friend's best efforts to give you a compilation of what they want you to think about their marriage. You see only their best efforts 
of showing off their marriage. And then you go to somebody's blog and you read about how a spouse should be doing this. And you think, my spouse ain't doing that. If only she would do that and he would do this, I would be happy. Jesus says, no. Do not rejoice in that. Yes, you should strive for marital bliss, but it will never satisfy you. Your marriage is like a wobbly stool, not meant to hold the weight of joy only to be had in God. Instead, let's put the joy of our ultimate pleasure on the rock of Jesus Christ. Only he can hold it up. Only he can hold your hope. This is what Jesus is saying in this text. It's really good news. You might think, well, that doesn't say much about marriage. No, it's good news. I love your marriage. I'm all for it. I'm just saying, don't make it the ultimate point of your hope because it will let you down. But Christ never will. He is the only rock. Rejoice that your name is hidden with God in heaven. And don't miss the fact that all of this hope comes while you're living sin. This idea of your heart hidden with God comes up right in the text about evangelism, about mercy, about prayer. There's the idea that as you're living sent on mission, you will receive confirmation that your name is written in God's forever book. You're a part of the family of God. There's one more joy that appears in this text. And it's the rejoicing done by Jesus himself. Look at verse 21. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you. He's praying now. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. That's the gospel. You've hidden these things from the wise and the glory of Christ. You've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding people. And you revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And then similarly in verse 23, he says to the disciples, you know, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see. And they didn't see it. They wanted to hear what you heard, but they never heard it. What's he talking about? It's not often in the Gospels that we see Jesus rejoicing. That those words are said about Jesus. So when we hear them, we want to perk up. If we want to feel that divine joy. We want to understand why is Jesus rejoicing? Well, you could say that he's rejoicing in the design of God. Jesus is enjoying, he's happy because he's seen God's great design. That includes two points here. The first one is a biggie and it's complex. But basically he's saying here, you've hidden my glory from some people and you decided to show it to some other people and I love that about you, God. God chooses who and when he is going to save. And Jesus loves that. Why is that? Well, particularly in this passage, he reveals it. Jesus says, you don't always show yourself to the wise, right? The culture makers, the top of the intellectual tier, the people with power. Those people don't just figure out God. Think about it. If you could just puzzle out who God would, was and is and how he works, Steve Jobs, Stephen Hawking, these people would all have it down like that. They're so smart. They're so good at what they do. They're so successful. They just figure God right out. That's not how God works. It's not how he saves. Instead, he chooses to reveal himself to the people he calls little children. What does he mean by that? 
He's talking about the undeserving. He's talking about the underaccomplished, the incapable. God shows himself to the unwise, to the foolish. Why? Because this cuts against any chance that we might give the successful people, the wise people, all the credit for salvation. We might be tempted to say, well, of course Steve Jobs figured it out. He's so smart at everything he touches is gold. We might be tempted to say that. But Jesus says, no, he chooses the incapable to show off his glory. Only God gets the credit. Last week I was in South Carolina and I went uh, kayak fishing in the intercoastal waters there. It's a beautiful place to fish. But I'm not a good fisherman. So I was fishing a while and we caught a little bit, but I went hours of no action, right? And so I'm not from that part, so I pull the kayak out and I say, I'm going to go talk to the old timers, the local yokels that know the place. They know what they're doing. There's some guys over there who are catching fish. I'm not catching so much fish. I'm going to talk to them. And it was very revealing when I talked to them. They said, of course, you've got to have the right bait, the right gear, the right tactics, all that. But they said, the foundational factor of you catching fish is actually going to depend on the tide, whether it's coming in or out. It's going to depend on the oysters, whether they're piling up here or not. It's going to depend on the movement of the fish, where they're schooling at. And I was like, oh. And I was sitting there in the, in the kayak, fishing, and just 20 feet away from me, this dolphin porpoises up. He just porpoises right out of the water. And I'm like, oh, cool. That's an omen from God that I'm going to catch all kinds of fish or something. This has got to be good. And I look over at the experienced dude, and he's packing up. And he says, no more fish today, buddy. I'm like, why? I'm using the right bait. I'm in the right spot. You told me to fish here. And he said, the dolphin's here. He's going to scare every fish away. You might as well leave. And he starts leaving. And he has this awe about him. It's the awe of the power of the bay. The bay controls whether you're catching fish or not. That was his message. And God works like that as well. At the end of the day, God chooses for whom he will reveal himself and to whom he will reveal himself. And that's good news. Jesus loves that. Jesus is comforted by that. Because he's got an army of people living sent. And he knows they're working hard as we should work hard. But at the end of the day, he gives God the credit for it. He says, you're going to hide this good news to some people. And then you're going to show it to other people. And I trust you with that. And parents, mothers, 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 please Grab onto this. Witness to your child. Sing to your child. Raise them in righteousness. And then when your head hits the pillow, you must trust that God has a redemptive plan for your child. You must grab onto that. It is not your efforts that is going to ultimately determine that his name is written in heaven. It's the determination of our good, sovereign God who can handle much more than you can. So it's good news that you can trust in God's ultimate justice and grace and power for your family. There's one more joy here, one more part of this joy. You see it in verse 22. Jesus says, you need to know all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Did you get that? No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. Now there's this interconnectedness that's come up in the text. 
and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. What's he talking about there? In brief, he's saying that God the Father has given the Son all authority and all of revelation of who the Father is. Practically what that means? You don't get to the Father unless you have the Son. You'll never know God unless you know Jesus. You won't hear that on TV. What you hear in our culture is there's a ton of ways to get to God. Just let me do my way and back off of me, right? Jesus is saying there's just one way to know God, really. And it's this guy. He points to himself. It is me. That's why it's crucial that we, as followers of Jesus, we must be speaking of him. We must be speaking, urging people to repent. Heaven and hell is at stake. You will never see the Father unless you see the Son. We must tell people who Jesus is. We must show people who Jesus is with acts of mercy. We must pray to God. Say, God, send us more laborers and reveal yourself to all of those you wish to be written in your book in heaven. That's our call from this text. It's not an easy one. But I hope, hope you will claim it today and this week live actively as a sent one for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, may we respond today to this text with humility, yet unction to live sent for you. May we pray, people on our knees calling out to you to send more people. You're a higher power that you have access we don't have, visions we don't have, infinite wisdom we will never have. I pray that you send it as we go. And God, fill our hands with acts of mercy this week. May we speak the kingdom is near to the people in our lives. Help us, God, to be beacons of repentance for all the world to see so that they may delight in the Son and have their names written in heaven and that you, O oh Father, would get all the glory. Father, I pray we take your charge, that we don't shirk away, that we stand up and live sent. You said you're sending us out like lambs to be slaughtered, and I get it. And yet, God, today we want to bow before you and heed this word and live sent for Jesus. God, I pray for that power supernaturally. In Jesus' name, amen.